So I want to welcome you today, and we're going to dive in this morning. So um, we're going to go to Jonah chapter 3, but let me set this up a little bit this morning here. It's so interesting to see, I don't know about me, but there's something energizing when I see multiple generations of God's people gathered. When I hear kids reading God's word, when I know that our kids are going to school, that we have everything from teachers and bus drivers and superintendents and all that in our midst right now, and that God's going to use you all in a powerful way this coming school year. So as we think about where we are right now, as we think about the word that God has for us today, it does not come to us in a vacuum. So we've been going through this book of Jonah, and what uh, our approach has been this, first of all, that it's more than a kid's story. It's not simply a nice little story of, of Jonah who disobeys God, and then he turns around, and he, or he you know, gets swallowed up by this big whale, gets spat out, preaches a good word, and everything is perfect. It's a little bit more complicated than that. So we're, we want to understand the story. We want to have the humility to be read by the story and then the faith to live out the story. So last week, uh, we, we spent some time uh, in a tough spot, in a tough spot where, where Jonah is in, uh, is in the belly of the fish and he has been vomited out. That is in God's word. I don't know what the word vomited uh, translates to in all the different languages, but uh, Jonah has been vomited out into the dry land, and he is going to preach the word that he believes God has given him today. So what I would invite you to do today, all right, in our brief time together in the word, uh, I'm going to take you through chapter three. I'm going to stop and pause, make some observations, and then I believe I have a good challenge for us uh, here at the end. So here we go. Jonah chapter three, Verse 1, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Remember the first time, God said, go to Nineveh. Jonah says, uh, no, baby, no, I am not going to Nineveh. I'm going to go the other way. I'm going to go as far away as I possibly can. He is going to disobey the word of the Lord. And this starts this great irony that the very prophet, the mouthpiece of God, will disobey and flee. So he is on the run. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Some things happened to Jonah while he was in the belly of the fish. Prayed this beautiful prayer that we talked about last week. We used this phrase, a severe mercy. Sometimes God causes you this much pain to keep you from this much eternal pain. Sometimes God will bring that into your life, bring that into my life, bring that into our lives for a purpose that's greater than we may be able to see at the time. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Now we've talked about Nineveh, if we were to go to modern day Nineveh, it's in Iraq, and we've talked about how the Ninevites were some uh, part of the Assyrian Empire. And they are some of the, you know, they were brilliant military strategists, but they were also some of the most brutal 
people ever to walk the face of the earth. And if you were to go into the palace of the king, you would see these stone wall relief portraits of all that they did to their captors, all that they'd done to the people that they had conquered, whether it was impaling them, whether it was having family members carry heads around, whether it was uh, cutting off legs and one arm and shaking their hands as they died, awful, brutal things that the Ninevites did and were known for. But as we've talked about, it's not simply, I would be afraid to go to Nineveh if I were Jonah. I would be afraid to lose my life. That seems to be a very reasonable thing to consider. But for Jonah, it wasn't so much that. It was the fact that he did not want the Ninevites to be spared from God's judgment. He did not want that. Which gives us pause, which gives us some things to consider as we go. I want to take you to verse 3. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now in English I can do the math, that is an eight-word sermon. In Hebrew, I believe it was five. That is a brief message, which is ironic when you look at all the other prophets. It's usually longer than those number of words. So what we've talked about with Jonah, it's not simply, it's not so much the words of Jonah that are instructive. It's the life of Jonah, the life of the prophet that we're going to look at. Not so much as this moral exemplar, But it's this ironic figure that we will look at and and it will cause us to think and cause us to think about who God really is. What is the real nature of God? So he preaches this brief sermon. Now, the Ninevites would have heard this and they would have been afraid. And if you know a little bit of Bible, you think of Sodom and Gomorrah, you think of God's power to destroy A city. This is a literal destruction they would have in mind. Now, verse 5 the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Now, what is sackcloth? It's like a burlap sack, not very comfortable. So, don't eat and put on a burlap sack. Now they believed and they acted. The evil Ninevites, one of the things that we've seen throughout, and this goes back to even uh, when the sailors were on the ship, everything is upside down in Jonah. The bad guys seem like good guys. The good guy seems like a bad guy. Everything seems topsy-turvy, and we're asking the question, why? But here we see that the Ninevites believed God. Five-word sermon. They respond, not just with this, yes, that's a good idea, but they actually, they fast, they put on burlap. They're saying, we we take this word seriously. It's the opposite of what you expect. Now, part of what this is about, when you look at the Hebrew people, lots of prophets, lots of mouthpieces 
from God would say, look, you're going the wrong way. Change. But there was a history of that not happening. Lots of words, lots of prophets, yet we see the simple message of Jonah. Five words, repentance. Now, I want you to pause here for a minute. I want you to think of that word belief. Belief. If I had Steve up here, I don't know if he does Hebrew. I'm sure he does Hebrew in lots of languages. But I, would, I, I, I want to think about that word belief. The Hebrew concept of belief is a little bit deeper than what we tend to think of. Kind of in the Hebrew mind, to, to belief was to also respond in action. We see this in the Ninevites. They don't just say, yes, I believe, but I believe and I respond. I, I fast, I don't eat, and I put on burlap. I don't know about you, but sometimes I think in our culture, we don't quite think of belief in the same way. We tend to locate belief as just something in here. Oh yeah, I believe that that's true. And I think sometimes that gets us into problems. Because I think sometimes we have the tendency to reduce the gospel to a bare minimum of I will say some words, I will pray a prayer, and that signifies that I have believed. I don't say that to judge. I say that to try to bring us to reality. Because I believe sometimes we're in a position where we, we utter words, we may think thoughts. I may say, I prayed a certain prayer, and I'll go to heaven someday, and everything will be wonderful. And then maybe there's a life that gives no evidence. Maybe there's a life that there's no evidence that God really matters. There's no evidence that says, well, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, that's a pretty strong thing to believe, to say that Jesus Christ, I actually believe that he rose from the dead. Now, that's really no big deal. That should change everything. If we really grasp that truth, that truth should change everything. Now, if I say I believe that, if I, if I just have this mental assent that says, yeah, I'll check the box and say that's true, but nothing changes. My desires don't change. My actions don't change. If that's me, if that's you, if that's somebody you love, I would say, I don't know if you're really a believer. I don't know that you really are following Jesus. So take this this morning as a warning in love. If that's you, if that's some, pause and say, hey, that's, that's, that's okay. Let's just deal with reality here. Let's deal with reality. What would be the worst thing for me to say? That's no big deal. That is a big deal. Pause. Let's think about that for a minute. Let that truth penetrate. Doesn't mean you're perfect. Doesn't mean everything is up and to the right. 
engineers out there, it's some kind of sine curve deal where, you know, we have some dips and we go up. And I had some really smart kid explain that to me one time. But it's, there's, there's dips, but over time we're growing. So don't hear me, wow, if I'm not up in the right every single day, he's not even saying I'm a believer. That is not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, is there any evidence? Is there any response to that belief? Jesus' younger brother James would say, look, faith without works is dead. Our works don't save us. No, no, no. God is always the first mover. But in response, we do something. Now, let's go back to the story. Some of you may need to just let that sit on you for a minute. I'm going to come back. Don't worry. Let's go to verse 6. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. I want you to picture this for a moment. The king, Assyria, Nineveh, most powerful man in the known world. Not even a close second. Most powerful person in the world. What do those robes symbolize? What does that throne symbolize? This is power. Look at all the stone reliefs. Look at all the pictures. This is not a nice man. This is the one who's overseen all this destruction. Takes him off. Exchanges the robe for the burlap. And sits down in the dust. Verse 7, this is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Even the animals repent, change. This is over the top. Now, Jonah, did Jonah exist? Yes. Did all this stuff happen? Yes. The writer is also shaping the story in a way that's going to challenge us and make us think. There's some irony here. Even the animals are commanded to fast. He continues, let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Let them give up. Other translations say turn from. Simple word in Hebrew that simply means I'm going this way and I turn. Started off with the simple I'm walking this way and I turn. What the prophets will do, they'll take this word and they'll deepen it and they'll give it a, a deeper spiritual meaning. So I'm, I'm heading this way away from God and now I turn. Ironic, who was heading away from God and had to turn before he could even give this message? Jonah himself. Who is turning, who is not turning? When we get to the New Testament, we'll have another word. It was read earlier, repent. Repent is to, is to turn, 
But even more specifically, to change your mind, to change your mindset, to actually change the way you think. And specifically, how you think about God, how you, where God is. So here we have this call from an evil pagan king for repentance. And then he says this in verse 9, who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Now, I want you to pause. Look at the king. Look at Jonah. Jonah kind of disobedience. Jonah kind of bare minimum response a little bit. The king's response is it's maximum. Even even the animals are going to repent. All this stuff, it's over the top. Verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Now, let's talk about this story for a minute. Let me, let me put it into our own times for a minute. I want you to think about the Old Testament. Is the, does the Old Testament matter to us? Of course it does. Jesus said the Old Testament, it, everything, it points to him. It's instructive. So what, what does God have for us today? And one of the things I love about the library known as the Bible is the different genre or the different forms in which it comes to us. Sometimes it's hard-hitting commands. Sometimes it's poetry. We saw this wonderful poem last week. But God gives us this story with irony with the opposite of what we would expect. Why? What does it do? Where are my Star Wars fans out there? I know there are a few, so forget the rest of you, all right? But when Luke, when Luke Skywalker confronts Darth, Fre- Darth Vader, what's one of the most ironic things that we find out about Darth Vader? Luke, I am your father. Whoa. What happens? If you're, you, you see this, I mean, we could go into all kinds of great literature. I don't have time. I won't let all my English teacher come out in me. I was going to talk about Oedipus, and I see the clock, and all this thing. I can't, I can't do it. But when we get irony, it's the opposite of what we expect, and it's, it does something in us. It makes us think. Now, what does God want us to think about in the story, the, the big story of Jonah? It drives us to think about who God is. What is his character? Now, we see in God, we see love, and we see judgment. The fierce anger of the Lord, it's a real thing. (laughs) Love, compassion, real thing. How do we fit those two together? I want you to think about that this morning. How How do you fit God's love, God's judgment together? We talk about the 100,000 in our community who don't have a church home. They probably struggle with belief. Was talking with somebody I would put in that category. We love them. We want to share. But the big obstacle for, for him was God's judgment. God's judgment. I'm free. I want to be free. I'm not a bad dude. I'm better than most. In fact, I'm probably better than a lot of the people 
that say they're Christians. I don't want somebody to tell me what to do. Maybe I, maybe I sense that there's something bigger out there, but to say, wow, there is a God who judges? All that Old Testament, so I, I, I can't wrap my mind around that. Am I the only one that's ever wrestled with that or had a conversation with somebody about that? Because we, we like love. We like love. You watch the Olympics, and, and yet again, we, we hear Paul McCartner McCartney and Imagine and great song but uh, everything is divorced from any judgment that hasn't worked out for our world very well but when we think of how do we put these two together love and judgment quick illustration to make the point and then we'll, we'll we'll wrap it up two boys Johnny and Seth 20 months apart little dude Seth glasses from three months Went to preschool. Somebody made fun of him. Preschool. Older brother Johnny, perhaps out of love, perhaps out of something else, saw that kid. Bam! He issued a decree of judgment. He saw it. He acted. We could evaluate those motives, perhaps, but a limited understanding. But there was something in him that said, this isn't right. I'm going to act. Think about that. Now, let me, let, work, work with me on this. I was thinking ahead. I was thinking back to school. I'm thinking someday my beautiful granddaughter, Eleanor Ruth, the most beautiful baby ever, <laughs> is going to go to school. And I'm imagining little Elle in a, as a kindergartner walking into school. And then if I could imagine like some fifth grade bullies, like surrounding her and, and shoving her a little bit. That would rile me up a little bit. Now let's imagine the principal walked by. And the principal walked by and said, you know what? I don't want to issue any judgment here. That's really no big deal. Let kids be kids. In fact, it's 3 o'clock and I'm, I'm off the clock, so you know, I don't want to deal with that. If you witnessed that, what would you say? There's something wrong here. There's something wrong here. We, we, sometimes we misunderstand judgment and we separate judgment from love. What would be the loving thing to do? The opposite of judgment is not love. The opposite of judgment is apathy. The opposite of judgment is not love. It's apathy. So what would be the loving thing to do in that situation? Stop! I'm going to issue a judgment. I'm going to intervene. That would be the loving thing to do. When we think of God, God out of love makes a judgment. God out of love makes a judgment and says, stop, turn, turn around, repent, follow me. That's the simple gospel that we heard even if the kids preach this morning or, or, or read. Stop, turn. Now, what happens Love, judgment, they fit together. Out of love, now, when I turn, when I turn around, what do I find? That's where I found, find grace. That's where I find grace. 
That's where love and judgment meet. It's grace. Now, we go back to my little illustration, the principle, what would be good for the situation? What would be an act of, of grace? God giving us what we need in the situation. Well, intervention would, would protect my granddaughter. It would probably be what was best for those kids, definitely best for the school. But there's a bringing about of the values of the kingdom right there, of what is good right there. Now, so what does God do for us? God says, out of love, I'm going to see. I'm going to bring this to light. I'm going to convict. God's going to say, turn. And he gives us the cross. He gives us Jesus. Now, what does the cross do? The cross is grace. The cross says, when I, when I turn, when I'm confronted with the reality of my sin... I don't have to just pull myself up by the bootstraps. God is the first mover. God says, repent, turn. I can do that because God first loved me. I can respond in faith. This isn't clean yourself up first. This is turn and receive what God has done on the cross for you and for me. So the cross... God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. There's the king in the story, right? What does the king do? Removes those robes, comes down from his high position into a low position. He had to repent. Jesus Christ himself, without sin, no need to repent But Jesus, as Paul tells us in Philippians 2, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather he made himself nothing. And he took on the very nature of a servant. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And what Jesus did on the cross is he took the judgment that we deserve. That's grace. And this morning, we're going to come to the communion table together, and we're going to see that. We're going to see a portrait of this. We're going to see what God has done for us on the cross, and we're going to remember that. And some of you, some of you today may be in this situation, maybe for the first time. Maybe for the first time, it's, it's time for you to say, I'm going down this direction, and it's time for, I don't care what I've ever just said, but to really turn and really receive And here's the thing about Jesus, though. This isn't like a one-and-done deal. I don't know about you, but I continue to mess up. I continue to need to turn. Now, when I make that first turn, I I am saved, I am in Christ. But as I continue to draw nearer to him, there is still this pattern that says, Hey, Jason, turn, stop. Stop, turn around, follow me. And when we do that, we receive grace. We receive what we need. We're we're reminded of who we are. We're reminded that my, my meaning and my purpose is not in just sitting back on that throne again, but it's allowing God to work in me. 
And maybe for others this morning, it's a, it's a reminder that there's people that I know and love and care about who are just on their own path. They're just on their own path. And maybe today God's saying, it's time for you to be a messenger. It's time for you to represent Jesus and simply share what God has done in your life and point him to Jesus. So as we prepare for the communion, our communion time together, I would invite you to take out the the bread. We're reminded that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he, he broke it. And after giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples and he said, take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. May we receive the bread together. And in the same way, Jesus took the cup. He said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant that will be shed for your sins. Take, drink, do this in remembrance of me. So may we receive the cup together. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. We thank you that you love us so much that you didn't simply allow us to to go our own path, our own way, but that you invite us to turn and follow you. We thank you for what the bread and the cup represent, that, that separation found in our sin, that you have brought reconciliation to us. So we say thank you, and we would invite your Holy Spirit right now as we, as we reflect, as we sing, that your Spirit would guide our response. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.